take out your Bibles with me and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you today, please grab one from a seat close by in front of you. Acts, chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. Last few weeks, as we've been studying in the book of Acts, we're looking at the, the beginning of the church, the, the believing church, the church that proclaims Jesus as Lord and Savior. After his resurrection, he told the few that were following him at that time to wait, and a time would come in the very near future for them where an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them would, would fill them with power. And we saw how that took place and it transpired at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon them with great power. And they went out and they proclaimed with great boldness the truth of Jesus, the risen Lord and Savior. We saw that that was not well received by the religious leaders, but the church continued to grow. We saw the miraculous take place. When a man who had never taken a step in his entire life, lame from birth, over 40 years old, Peter speaking to him saying, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man got up and walked and leapt and praised God. And people seeing this and hearing the word of God and coming to, coming to follow Jesus as Lord and the church is growing, but the the, the opposition to the church also growing. And we saw that, that Peter and John were arrested and brought before the religious leaders, and they were told never to speak in the name of Jesus again. And they said, we can't stop talking about all that we've seen and heard. They were released. They went back with their, their friends, the other believers, and they were praying and seeking God. And that's where we left off last time in verse 31 of chapter 4. Beginning today, we'll look at verse 32 and following, but I think it's important we look at verse 31 as a kind of a jumping off point today. Chapter 4, verse 31, the book of Acts, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We see here an important thing. I started this because there's a conjunction at the beginning of verse 32, and that ties it directly to the previous verse and what's taking place. Because of this gathering together and seeking the Lord together, the Holy Spirit again is poured out upon this group. And notice what comes out of that, what flows out of that. We see a beautiful picture of what God designs and his desire for us as a body. Notice the unity of the believers. Notice the community of the believers. That's God's design. That's his heart for us. Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus 4 Beginning in verse 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice two words that are repeated over and over in just those two verses. <laughs> all and one. God's desire for his body, us as believers, is that we are all one, united. The world should see us and identify us for what unites us, not what divides us. Yet so often that is the case. That we can be known for what divides us, what comes in between us. And guys, disunity leads to selfishness. It leads to cliques. It leads to factions. Whereas unity leads to compassion and cooperation and community. Paul, again now speaking to the church in Philippi, again with the same undercurrent of unity, says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, this design and this, this, this beautiful picture of how the body of Christ is to operate. Notice Paul said, make my joy complete. I've shared this acronym many times before, but it's one that we should always remember. You want joy in your life? Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Joy. Paul outlines that very principle in what he's saying a couple of heads, and we see it played out beautifully in this early church. Everybody placing everyone else's needs above their own, not considering themselves first. And that, again, flips the whole worldly system on its head because the world says you got to look out for number one. And you know what that means. you got to look out for yourself. But God says that's not how it works best in my economy. That's not how it works best in the body of Christ. You see, and, and it really makes sense. Think of it this way. If you're looking out for your best interest, who, how many people are looking out for your best interest? One, you. If we follow the Christian model, if we follow what it says here, I don't look out for my interests at all, but all of you are. Seems like a pretty good switch to me. I'll stop worrying about me. You worry about me. I'll start worrying about you. You stop worrying about you. They'll worry about you. Isn't that awesome? And that's joy. That's where true joy comes in. What a beautiful picture that we see in this. We've, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, but again, it under, underscores the truth of this. Communism says what's yours is mine. Capitalism says what's mine is mine. Christianity says what's mine is yours. Christianity says, and it's an understanding that, bottom line, none of it's mine anyway. It's all the Lord's. It's all God's. He's the one who has blessed me. He's the one who has entrusted me. He's the one who has poured out his grace and his, his blessing on you. It all belongs to him. And when we hold on to it like this, it's amazing what else he can pour in. We see here, it says, notice, that, that in this community, great power is given to the apostles. Great power for giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
They were eyewitnesses of the risen king, Jesus, risen from the dead. They were eyewitnesses of that fact. But that's not what they're talking about here. That's not the great power. The great power isn't their eyewitness testimony. The great power is their changed life. The great power is the Holy Spirit in them. That's the great power pro proclaiming the truth of the resurrection. There's, in a court of law, there's, there's, there's many kinds of evidence. Eyewitness testimony is one type of evidence, but there's also circumstantial evidence that is entered in to a trial. And circumstantial evidence is detailed, comprehensive evidence, but it leads you to a conclusion. Even though you didn't eyewitness it, you, didn't physically, you weren't physically there when something took place, you know based on a conclusion that it had to take place. And when we look at this, let's just say today after, after church, no, not today after church, today after church, what are you doing? You're helping set up for VBS. So next Sunday after church, we decide we're going to go to California, and I'm going to drive and you're going to fly, and we're going to meet in Los Angeles. How do I know that you crossed the border? I know when I cross the border because I drive by and it says, welcome to California. I know I crossed the border, but you flew. How do I know you crossed the border? You're in Los Angeles. You had to cross the border. And that's the truth. Even though we didn't physically see Jesus risen from the dead, there's circumstantial evidence because my life has changed. He's in me. And that's the power of the resurrection and giving testimony of the resurrection, that great power. The same great power that was in the apostles to proclaim the resurrection is that same great power that's in you and I. But notice, too, it says great power, but notice, and abundant grace was upon them all. Grace. Beautiful word, grace. Unmerited, unearned favor. Those things that we get from God, blessings that come from him that we don't earn, that we don't deserve. Him pouring out things to us because of who he is and whose we are. We belong to him because of his great love for us. We don't earn it. It's not based on merit. It's based on his love for us. What's better than grace? I'll tell you what's better than grace. Abundant grace. Abundant grace. That Greek word, megos. I just need that, that sounds even better. Megos grace. Give me that. But it's important. I want you to see something. Again, I, we, I pointed out that there was a conjunction at the beginning of verse 32. There's a conjunction at the beginning of verse 34. And you remember back to the schoolhouse rock days, right? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Remember? It's combining... Two phrases or two thoughts. It's bringing them together. It's tying them together. So the abundant grace was upon them all for there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would distribute each to any who had need. Now, we're going to look at an important principle here in a moment, but I want to start with, again, the fact that, that this is, it says, abundant grace. We can never lose sight of the fact that this is grace, unmerited, unearned. So what we're going to talk about now is not in order to earn something, it's not in order to gain something in, in particular, but there's an important lesson here, and it's tied to what we're going to talk about. Notice again, abundant grace for. That means because. A conjunction meaning because. So there's a tie together with this. So keep your finger here in Acts, but turn to Philippians chapter 4. Because we see something taking place in this early church. 
this idea, again, behind this the total concept of what's, what's mine is yours, what God has blessed me with, it, 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 this, this whole thing. And it involves the giving and our hearts behind that. Philippians chapter 4, Paul has been talking to the church in Philippi here in this letter, speaking to them about the fact that he is content regardless of what he finds himself in, regardless of what situation he, he comes across. He says, I'm content whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, whether I, am, I have abundance or I am suffering need. And then he says, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I can face any situation and I can be content. Verse 14, Philippians chapter 4, he says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, after I left you guys, when I started preaching the gospel and sharing other, other places, ministry happening elsewhere, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So he's writing them to, to, to share with them this truth. After he left them, his ministry was going on and the gospel was being taken out to other parts of the world. And he said, nobody that heard of the need that was there got involved and shared except you guys. Now, if it would have just been left there and we would have continued, we wouldn't have understood quite the depth of what is taking place. And if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. But Paul wrote in, to the church in Corinth about the Philippian believers and their giving. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Again, Philippian church, only one in Macedonia that was giving. We saw that a moment ago. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In spite of their great poverty... There, it overflowed in liberality in their giving. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So Paul is talking about the Philippians to the Corinthians, and he said, guys... They were, they were suffering great persecution. They were suffering great affliction themselves. No doubt because they're Christians, they've, many of them lost their jobs, been cut off from their families, not able to buy and sell in the places like other places, totally shunned out. In their poverty, in their affliction, in their desperate situation, they heard about the ministry going on here and they begged us to let them give to this ministry, to be a part of it. And he said, notice, for the favor of participation. They looked at that as a, as, a, as a favor being granted to them, that you would let us be a part of the ministry that's going on there. Now, Paul goes on to say in chapter 8, verse 8, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. This isn't a command. He's not saying you do this out of compulsion. He's not saying you, you do this out of guilt. Paul didn't put a thermometer on the Philippian church wall and says, okay, we're getting closer, you know, to our goal. The, it was just, they were praying and they sought the Lord. 
Now, back in Philippians now, but that is a backdrop, understanding that that's how they were giving. That's how their part, the part was going. It said in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Here's the point, guys. He said it's not the gift anyway. It's not, it's not the gift that he's thankful for. He's, he's content with or without it. He's thankful for the gift. He's blessed by it. But that's not what it's about. He said it's not about the gift. He's super excited writing to them because they get it. They get the concept. They get the underlying principle. Notice he says that there is a profit to your account. Guys, we all have an account. Each individual one of us, there's an account that's being kept. And we all, most of us probably have individual retirement accounts, right? And the design behind that individual retirement account is to cover the short span from when we retire till when we die, right? So individual retirement account, it's, it's a relatively short period of time, speaking of which, but com especially compared to the other account I'm talking about, it's not an IRA, it's an IEA, it's an individual eternal account. <laughs> it's got to last forever. And... When we are used by God in this, trusting God and, and responding to what it is that he lays on our hearts, and we are obedient in that, deposits are being made into this eternal, in, eternal account. They, they, they got it. It's not about the material. It's about the spiritual. It's about the eternal they understood the concept, and they were excited to get behind it. Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So, with that as an understanding, what does that mean for you individually? What does that mean when it comes to this principle for you individually, you as a couple, you as a family? I don't know. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord, completely, totally. Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for, but work it out. You've been saved by grace through faith if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. That's done. But the sanctification process, and as we walk out this faith, and again, making those eternal deposits, that's between you and the Lord. But we do see some some principles here that are held together that, that again, we need, to, we need to be obedient. We see some things else in, when we look at in 2 Corinthians and we look at the way that they give. They gave sacrificially, even above and beyond what they thought that they could, but trusting that if the Lord laid it on their heart and they were obedient in it, he would take care of it. One of the key verses is that, that we need to give cheerfully. Not, not begrudgingly, not, not again out under compulsion or guilt, but cheerfully. God, it's yours, and you're, you're allowing me to play a part of it. There, there are natural laws that we all accept, you know, we, whether, whether we want to you know, say it out loud and agree with it or not. There's all, there, the law of gravity, we all accept that. <laughs> whether we want to verbally say it or not, we all accept it because none of us are floating. 
and, and the th law of thermodynamics and all of those types of things. We accept those, but there's also some spiritual laws that are even more sure and solid than the natural laws around us. And one of the spiritual laws, if you're still in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, it says, and, again, a conjunction tying it to what we just said, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all of your needs. That's an important thing to understand when we look at this. Who supplies for the needs? God does. Who supplied for Paul's need? What we just read. Who supplied for Paul's need? God did. But he used the Philippians as the conduit for which to, to get the need met. And again, under just bringing it all together again, this, this, this beautiful concept that if we embrace this totally, Jesus first, others second, ourselves last, we place others' needs above our own. I'm looking out for you, you looking out for me, you know, the, this whole thing, and then God is the one who gives. It's all his, he gives to others. It was always destined to be that Paul would receive these gifts. The Philippians were just the obedient ones to pass it on, and Paul said, because you were the blessing broker in the deal, you get the commission. What a deal. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the commissions that God pays out are out of this world. Literally. <laughs> well, we, we come back to Acts, and we see an example of this working out, this playing out a man in verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, he was born in Cyprus, who also, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we see a man named, his name is Joseph, but he's nicknamed, or, or the apostles change his name to Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. Now there are some really strange, even quite dumb nicknames out there, but this one is really cool. Son of encouragement? And we're going to see, as we will, we'll see a lot more of Barnabas. He's mentioned all throughout the book of Acts, and, and, and Paul mentions him in some of his letters that he writes. He's a traveling companion with Paul. We're going to get to know Barnabas as we study through the book of Acts. We're going to see that not only is he an encouragement because he knew of somebody's need, and he sold a possession that he had in order to help meet that need. Yes, of course, that's an encouragement, but he was an encouragement in the way that he came alongside, and words that he used, and the life that he lived, just being an encouragement and what a, what a great example but we're gonna we're gonna see a lot more of Barnabas as we continue to study through but here a, a good example another conjunction chapter 5 begins with but <laughs> in contrast to that good example we have a, a poor example a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? 
Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up and carried him out, and they buried him. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now there's another miracle in the first century church, the early church right there. Three hours elapsed, and this gossip hadn't gotten through the whole church yet? (laughs) Obviously before Facebook. But... So this takes place three hours later, his wife comes in. She doesn't know what's going on yet. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Difficult, kind of heavy section to read through. The first example that we have in the book of Acts of being slain in the spirit. Okay, it's, it's a heavy section. I was trying to lighten it up just a little, but <laughs> we saw a good example in Barnabas, a heart that, after God, a heart, a heart to, to bless others. We see here a difficult thing to look at because didn't they give? Yes. But, but they didn't give everything. That's the problem? No. No, that's not the problem. Peter said, the land was yours. You could do with it whatever you wanted to do with it. After you sold it, all the money, all the proceeds were your, your, yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with them. So what's the problem? The problem goes back to, it goes back to the beginning, the, the, the sin that leads to most every other sin. Pride, hypocrisy in this. So you see, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted, they wanted to impress the rest of the church. They, they probably saw what went on with Barnabas and they saw all of this going on and the recognition that he got, even though he probably didn't want anything to do with the recognition. They saw it and they were jealous of that and they said, hey, you know, if we do that, we might get new names too. If we do that, everybody might notice us too. And there's a way that we could do it and still come out even on the financial end. We'll sell the property for this. We'll tell, we'll tell the church, though, that we sold it for this, and we'll give them that, and we'll keep the difference. And then it's just a win-win all the way around. You know, that everybody will think we're really holy and special and, and, you know, give us some high esteem, and we'll keep some of the money, too. See, the problem is you can fool some of the people all of the time, and you can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God ever, ever. And it comes down again that this is, this is an issue of the heart. And only God knows and understands completely the heart. Notice, Peter calls it right out. He says, you've not lied to men. You haven't lied to me. You haven't lied to the other people in the church. You haven't lied to the church. You've lied to God. 
Notice, too, he said prior to that in verse 3, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, underscoring that truth, the Holy Spirit is God. But that's, bottom line, you've lied to God. You have pretended to be something that you're not in order to impress other people. Now, that is the sin. That is, that is what is judged here. But when we look at the judgment that comes down, I don't know about you, and perhaps if this is the, your first time hearing this story, you might be thinking, man, that's kind of harsh. That's pretty heavy judgment on that. At least they gave something. You know, and again, but missing the entire thing, the heart that's behind it. And we can, and, and I'll tell you right now, if, if you're looking at that and you're thinking, man, that is, that is way too harsh. That's way too over the top. That's your flesh. That's my flesh when I think about it, because I can get that way. But when we ponder on this for a moment, and we let the Spirit speak to our hearts, I hope like you, I'm overwhelmed, not at the harshness of God, but at His mercy. Because this is a single incident that happens. And I'm overwhelmed by His mercy that He shows me every time I'm not, I, I, I have the Ananias in me. The desire for someone to think different of me than what truly happened, to what, what's really going on. I mean, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but have any of you ever been in an argument on your way to church? <laughs> Based on that response, you know, okay. And, you know, and we, we do, and that, that is, we, we'll be going after each other and you pull in the parking lot and you get out and People say, how are you guys doing? Oh, we've never been better. Oh. We're worshiping the Lord. Aren't you glad that, that this isn't the precedent? When we're standing and we're with our arms raised and we're singing all together, I surrender all. God says, no, you didn't, and no, you didn't, and no, you're not, and no, you're not, and <laughs> praise him for his mercy. There is an important lesson, though, in here. Guys, we, we always, always need to examine our heart and have God examine our hearts. Because bottom line, that's it. The heart of the matter is it's a matter of the heart. That was the problem here. Satan filled your heart. But Ananias couldn't stand there and say, well, yeah, the devil made me do it. Nope, no Flip Wilson response. It says that the, Satan filled your heart, but notice, you have conceived in your heart. The devil... Our enemy, our spiritual enemy coming against us continually, tempting with that, trying to get after that pride, trying to get after that area. But he needs a willing accomplice. He can't make us do anything. And we need to continually examine our hearts and have the Lord examine those things because we can deceive ourselves. What's, what's the end of it all for Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, the question, I, people ask, are they in heaven? I don't know. If you're going to ask me if, to give you my opinion, I think they are. 
I think that they were believers. I mean, based on what's going on in the early church and everything, it was just, I believe, I believe that they are. Don't have any, any other evidence other than that's just my, just my opinion. I'll tell you, if they are, there, is, there aren't two happier people in heaven that we all get new names. Because we're, we're all going to get a new name. And how'd you like that? You know, walk up to him and say, hi, I'm Brett. I'm Ananias. Ooh. I'm going to go talk to Peter. I'll... Hmm. Well, one good thing did come out of this entire thing, and I guess that's the, the last thing before we move on. Notice verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Guys, that word fear means reverence. Especially when we look at this time, the church is just beginning. Fear of the Lord needed to be the foundation of it. And guys, I'll be honest with you, a good healthy dose of the fear of the Lord needs to be infused into the body of Christ today. We fear respecting God for who he is. And that takes place here. And this is a good thing. In verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however. However, I'm sorry, dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. We see Again, this organic growth that is taking place within the church. It's not artificial. They're not going to seminars. They're not doing it. It's organic. They're doing ministry. They're praying. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're sharing the truth. They're, they're, they're out and about in the community. They're, they're, they're gathering together regularly, and God is adding to their numbers. No, God is multiplying their numbers. And notice something else. I think this is important. Even those that don't want to become one of the group, don't, don't want to give their lives to Jesus. They're, not, they're, they're rejecting the message, but they're not rejecting the, the people necessarily. Look, however, verse 13, however, the people held them in high esteem. They lived their lives in such a way that the, the love of Jesus was coming out all over the place. And though people, many of the people rejected the truth that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah, there was no doubt. They had to respect the fact that, man, these people are full of love. These people are full of caring. They, they truly do care about me. Guys, I'll tell you, sometimes when I look at what goes on in the world around us, and hear me when I say the church, I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel Surprise. I'm talking about the, maybe the church as a whole. Some people who claim to be Christians, the way that they respond to things in the world is anything but loving. See, we're called to speak the truth in love, both. We can't water down the message. We do not change the message. But we have to speak the truth in love. 
Love without truth is fantasy. <laughs> it, it, it won't last. It's temporary. It's, it's, it's fantasy. But guys, truth without love is brutality. And it's, it's pushed away. The Bible tells us it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And oftentimes that kindness coming through and flowing through us, kindness, love. And obviously that is portrayed in these believers because those who didn't even accept the message certainly respected them. But not, certainly not all of them, as we can see as we look at verse 17, the religious leaders... The high priest rose up along with his, all of his associates. That is the sect of the Sadducees. And notice, this is, this is key. They were filled with jealousy. Jealousy. They look at what is taking place with these unlearned. Remember, unlearned, uneducated men? We looked at that last time. And they're thinking, okay, they're just, this, this thing, this can't keep going. I mean, these are, these are fishermen. Look, every day they look out there on Solomon's portico and the group keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they're jealous. They're like, what is it about that? Well, I know more than they do. I'm dressed better than they are. I have way more to offer than they do. Why is it that people are flocking over there? Jealousy in their hearts. And guys, jealousy has no place in the heart of a believer. Jealousy has no place in the church. It happens so often, though. In our, we have to be so careful. We see somebody, a ministry that is going or thriving, and people follow someone, and we say, wait a second, I know more than they do. I'm more qualified than they are to lead that Bible study or to do those types of things. How come they and how come this? Instead of saying, God bless them. How can I come alongside them? How can I be involved and help them and assist them, not how do I get the position? How do I get noticed? That, that was their problem right here. James tells us that that type of thinking, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie to the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. <laughs> and we see that here playing out disorder every evil thing look at how they come against again these believers the disciples the apostles they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail but during the night an angel of the lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out he said go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life upon hearing this they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach now when the high priest and the associates came, they called a council together, even all of the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what they would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Here again, 
these, these, the, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, they're, they're struggling with the fact that this, this thing is growing. And, they, and so they have them arrested. They place them in jail thinking, I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll take them out of the way so that they can't, they can't speak. And I love that. The God of angel armies says, hey, just one of you, go down there. Let them out. Jail break. And they, they get out. And notice what he says. He does not say, okay, now, go into hiding and wait Wait until things cool off. Wait until things blow over. No, he said, get right back into it. Go right back in to the temple. Go right back into the heat of it. And proclaim the truth, all of it, the whole truth. And look at their obedience. And this is an important thing about obedience. Obedience. It was immediate and it was total. Delayed obedience is disobedience. God tells you to do something. Weight isn't in, in our response. And complete obedience, partial obedience is disobedience. They obeyed immediately and completely, went right back into the temple. <laughs> I, I, it just, it's, re, it's, it's hard not to chuckle when you read through this because they're like, okay, go get them. They're not there. What's going on? Oh, they're back out where they were yesterday. <laughs> they go get them. No, no violence. They go and they get them. And I love that too. They're, they're, not, they're not trying to get away from anything. They willingly go. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Just a couple of quick observations. I, I, if I'm them, my first question is, how did you get out? <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that it's telling that their heart is so hard and they are so angry and set against what's going on. That, that's like not even on their radar. Didn't we tell you not to do that? And yet, all of Jerusalem's hearing about it. I'm like, praise the Lord. <laughs> and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Just weeks earlier, they were the ones that were crying out, let his blood be upon us and our children." But Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter again, taking the opportunity to share the truth with this council. Again, same ones that just a days earlier he's standing in front of again with the same message. But he doesn't change the message. The message never changes. The truth of it. Jesus died and rose again. His death in our place, paying the full penalty for our sin. We all stand condemned before a holy and righteous God because of our sin. All of us. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The perfect Lamb of God. The spotless one, the sinless one. 
exchanging his sinless life for our sin-filled life. And dying on the cross, he cried out, it is finished, paid in full. But that would have meant nothing if he would have stayed in the tomb, if he would have stayed in the grave, if he would have stayed dead. But he didn't. Three days later, he rose again, proving that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted. Laid out here perfectly and beautifully for them, just so simply. And I believe that Peter's heart is the same as God's heart when he's delivering this. God, as his word says, it's not his desire that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Notice what he says. He is the one whom God exalted at his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel, to you guys, to grant repentance. Did you guys understand that that's a gift too? The opportunity to repent is a gift. He doesn't owe us that. But he's giving this. It's an opportunity again, guys. Here, simply repent. He's seated at the right hand of God, which, by the way, Jesus stood in front of this very council and said, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of the Father coming again in the clouds. Jesus said that that's where I'm going. Peter said that's where he is. Just like he said, seated at the right hand of power. Grant repentance. Forgiveness of sins. Again, we need to understand that truth. If you're here today and you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this, this is a truth you need to embrace today, right here. We all stand condemned. Paul says this to the church in Galatians, chapter 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Simply stated, the, the law of God, you break one, you're guilty. If you have not kept the whole law, you are under a curse, condemned, standing condemned before a holy and righteous God. And there's nothing, a curse that is, that is placed here, there's nothing you can do to get out from under that curse except repent. He goes on, Paul does, in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's only, there's only one way to come out from under the curse, and that's to come under the grace. That's to come under Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He became the curse for us. He became sin for us. And we need to repent, which means to turn, turn from the direction we're going, turn to Jesus and receive him as our Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that right now. Right now. It's the only way. And for those of us who have, who have who have made Jesus Lord of our life, have received that. We're going to celebrate communion this morning together. We're going to pray here in a moment, and then we're going to sing and worship, but then we're going to celebrate communion as we remember the fact that he took it all upon himself. Rejoice in, in what we have because of who he is and what he did. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we do stand in awe of you and we thank you as we see again in your word and we're reminded again in your word that you are the one. You are the one who took our place. You are our redeemer. If you are here today and you have never taken that step to to make Jesus Lord of your life, it's simply a matter right now of responding to the Holy Spirit in your heart. And you say, God, I, I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. Jesus, I believe that you are that Savior. I believe that you are the only way. I believe that you lived a sinless life and then died in my place to take my sin. I believe you rose again and you are alive today. So Jesus, I ask that you would come into my life, into my heart now. That you would forgive me of all of my sin. I've heard many times today already that that your forgiveness is complete. I want all of my sin gone. I believe that you did that for me. Forgive my sin. You be Lord of my life now. You come in. You take control. Give me your spirit. Lord, we thank you for that work in us, and we celebrate that now. And as we worship you this morning, would you do a work in each of our hearts? Would you, would you examine us? Lord, we give you right now, we give you license to go through our hearts personally, deeply, Lord, if there's any Ananias and Sapphira in there, if there's any pride, any selfishness, any hypocrisy, any jealousy, anything, Lord, that is not pleasing to you, reveal that to us. And Lord, we we humbly and completely, Lord, we lay that at the foot of the cross. We know, Lord, that that is, that is paid for, paid in full, But Lord, we need to turn from that again. Thank you for who you are. Lord, we worship you now. In Jesus' name.